This is the Agile Business Athlete Show, a well-being podcast that shows you how to beat burnout and have more fun. In each episode, Leanne will be joined by special guests who will share their secrets of how they stay healthy and energized and the simple steps they take to prioritize good health. And if they can do it, so can you. And now over to your host, Leanne Spencer. My guest today is a Silicon Valley consultant. He's a twice... uh, I'm going to start that again. That sentence isn't going to come out right. That's fine. My guest today is Alex Sujong Kim Pang. He's been on this podcast or the previous podcast I had, removed to guesswork twice before. So I think third time, it's probably the only guest we've invited back three times. So kudos to you for that. Um, Alex is a Silicon Valley consultant. He's the author of three books, Shorter, Rest and the Distraction Addiction. And his, his kind of ethos is around showing companies how to better integrate rest, creativity and focus into digital age lives and work. So very much looking forward to this conversation, Alex. A huge welcome to the show for the third time. Um, let's start by a slightly naughty question, perhaps. You know, you talk a lot about the four-day week and rest. People might think that you want, you want their, their team members to be working less or perhaps more efficiently. So tell us your backstory and what led you to your ideas and your work on productivity and essentially, I suppose, human performance. Sure. So um, first off, you know, thanks very much for having me, no matter order of, order of which iteration or generation of the, the podcast or of, uh, order of you're at. It's always, it's always nice to, to talk and to catch up. So um, as for order of, the, order of my own work, you know, um, the, uh, I am recently or most recently been working on um, or uh, studying companies that have moved to four-day weeks or other kinds of short work weeks without cutting salaries for workers and without kind of reducing expectations about delivery dates or output or, you know, or to such for order for companies. And the idea here being that uh, technology has actually made it possible for sort of companies to do five days worth of work in four, but it's just sort of that fact is buried under, you know, the hours per day that we lose to overly long meetings and technology distractions and outmoded processes. And partly, you know, the, the, uh, and, you know, if you can sort of clear that stuff away, then you know you are able to give time back to people so that they can you know they've got more time for sort of rest for recovery also for stuff like you know working you know sort of family time or to volunteering things that are that we might not think of as recovery sort of but which actually are really important for recharging kind of psychological and spiritual batteries that we can spend down when we're working um and this is a way of moving uh, moving to shorter work weeks is a way of giving everybody not just professionals or or of you know sort of solopreneurs or people who have a lot of control over their schedules the opportunity to take or of to take advantage of or of the virtues of or of uh, of recovery and of rest and that was this and sort of explaining why this stuff is important, particularly for sort of knowledge workers and people who are in highly creative sort of uh, sort of competitive industries, was the subject of the book before shorter um, about rest. And that book would have looked at the lives of really creative people and found that number one, that you know, 
lots of Nobel Prize winners or composers or other famous sorts actually labored far fewer hours than we would think necessary to do great work. And the book was explaining how it was that they designed their days to sort of, you know, layer periods of work and rest so that they were able to do really fantastic work, um, but also to have longer, more sustainable, and often happier and more meaningful sort of lives and careers. So that's, uh, so very, you know, so very briefly, that's the kind of trajectory of sort of my interest in issues around kind of rest and creativity and sort of, and work. Mm. So, um, as you know, the whole, pre- and by listeners, by this point, if they've been listening sequentially, will know this as well, that the podcast is about the Agile Business Athlete methodology. And it's, it's not about me talking about my methodology, but it's the cadence of looking ahead, what's coming up, getting ready for those big events, professionally, personally, getting them done or performing, if you like. But then what I consider to be the major missing piece in most people's lives, is the word you've mentioned a few times, it's the recovery. Whether it's just a minute within every hour or minute an hour just to take a you know, look out the window and daydream breathe look at a photo of a pet or a loved one or a holiday that you wish to be back on or you're looking forward to going on or whether it's more you know sabbatical um which would be a longer period potentially of recovery not necessarily but you know what i mean um <laughs> it really varies but i think i really think it's the missing piece but you mentioned some anecdotal stories there about um, people who've, who've accomplished great works do you have a couple of examples you can talk through to us sure so um you know one of my uh, one of my favorite individual stories is sort of charles darwin you know author of origin of species and he's a favorite of mine partly because my own academic background is in history of science, but we also have a lot of documentation of Darwin's life. So sort of we can we can really kind of drill into his daily schedule with a fair degree of sort of confidence. Um, you know, unlike today's CEOs, he didn't have press people who, you know, would talk up like how few hours of sleep he, you know, or mm-hmm. he would get and you know, how many hours per day he's in, you know, on the phone or sort of, you know, solving the world's problems. So, you know, Darwin was unquestionably the most important of naturalist of the 19th century. You know, he's the person who sort of comes up with the, the idea of sort of evolution via natural selection. But when you look at his daily schedule, it turns out that sort of his mature life was one where, you know, he uh, sort of, you know, he was incredibly devoted to sort of his work. Um, he even moved out of London to the village of Downs so that he would be removed from some of the distractions of city life. Um, but his daily schedule was not one where he was working all the time, right? So there's this paradox of you organize your life around, you may make big life choices to support your work, but your daily schedule is not one in which you're working all the time. So Darwin would get up in the morning, go for sort of a long walk, and then would be in his study from about 8 a.m. to about noon. He'd have, he'd generally work for a couple hours, have a break, sort of work some more. And that was the bulk of his, sort of uh, the bulk of what we would you know, today regard as sort of his work time. Then after lunch, he'd go for a long walk, um, on a path at the edge of his property that he called uh, his thinking path. Um, and then after an hour or two out there, come back, maybe sort of do a little bit more kind of pottering around, 
And then that was pretty much sort of his work for the day. Working like that, you know, he produces some of the most important scientific discoveries and theories of the 19th century. And I think that the, you know, what that exemplifies is a couple things. You know, number one, that Darwin, like a lot of these, uh, the folks I write about in REST, were really uh, or, uh, layered periods of super-focused work with periods of sort of leisure. And they did this on a daily basis. You see it in their weekly schedules. You see it in vacations and in sabbaticals. And so <clears throat> there's a kind of, um, you know, this is something that plays out at multiple levels and timescales. Another thing that's note, and <clears throat> you do it this way because when you think deeply about a problem, it turns out that, you know, you get a lot of sort of ideas running around in your mind. Sometimes, though, you get, you know, blocked on something. You can't quite figure out some important piece of it. And if at that moment, when you've still got this stuff kind of going around in your head, you take a break, it's often the case that your subconscious, your kind of creative subconscious, um, will keep working on these problems even while your attention is directed somewhere else or if you're just not thinking about anything in particular. You're just letting your mind wander. And the schedules of these people sort of uh, suggest that they recognized the value of those periods of downtime and they consciously incorporated them into their days. So you build in time for that kind of both sort of uh, break time, but also potentially kind of creative exploration time. <clears throat> the other thing I think that's important is that there's a kind that, you know, it illustrates how important it is to be or to proactive and to plan, to plan your day and to control your time if you want these, or in order to get these, uh, get these sorts of benefits. You know, Darwin was, Kind of, you know, minor or of not gentry, but, you know, he was independently wealthy. He never really had to work. And yet he is someone who thought a lot about how he should structure his daily schedules in order to do the kind of work that, or that he wanted to do. And when you look at companies that have kind of put rest into practice for everybody, you see a similar kind of story. Right? You see people sort of constructing schedules for everyone that sort of give them time for both sort of, uh, you know, for kind of down, for sort of focused work, work time, for sort of creative breaks, for collaborative work, and for social time. So that would be, so my second example would be a company in, actually would be a company. Um, called Flock, which is a design agency um, up in Norwich. And they moved to a four-day week, I want to say in 2019 or so. They had, or Actually, they work a six-hour day, not a four-day week. And they have a schedule where they have about three hours or so of like focus time in the morning and the afternoons. They call it red time, where you don't have to answer the phone, you don't have to be on Slack. There's, you can spend that time on your most important stuff. Then they have periods of green time, which are social time. So um, coffee breaks or fika, as they call it, they were of, uh, a couple of their folks spent some time in Sweden, and they also have lunch together. And then there is amber time, which is for collaborative work, for meetings with clients, for sort of things that are things that are work but are kind of more social, and you've got to do them with others. And 
creating these kinds of this kind of schedule does a couple important things. You know, number one, it makes it possible for everybody to have sort of these uninterrupted periods where it's perfectly okay to be a tiny bit antisocial in the say in the name of sort of getting work done. The fact that everybody is doing it at the same time means that you know you don't have to worry about sort of watching your inbox because uh, you know what everyone else is doing. But second, you also get a little bit of that effect of like finals time in the library, right? You know, you may not be studying the same thing that everyone else is, but the fact that you're all together does kind of encourage you to focus a little bit more. It's also, I think, uh, you know, I also re- uh, reach for it because I think it's a lovely illustration of the way that companies need to be thoughtful about how they plan their days to incorporate time both for sort of this deep focused work time, but also for social time, for sort of a kind of sort of rest and recovery during the day. And what they, you know, what they tell me is that having these coffee breaks for everyone, having lunch for everyone is really valuable because it makes for both better work time and better social time. And, you know, being able to get up to sort of spend time with other people is you know is a great way to both make sure that the social life of the office and office friendships are maintained even when people are kind of working more intensively um but also that it's a great but it also helps people kind of recharge in between those periods of sort of deep work so um those are you know so those are two examples you know one one a famous person one a company but both of them, I think, are showing how you can use this, how you can use recovery during your days in order to help you do better work. How being proactive about this and being thoughtful about it is essential to making it succeed. And I think how sort of integrating, you know, integrating these periods of highly focused, intensive work, kind of high intensity with periods of rest is really essential for both promoting recovery, but also improving work and sort of sparking creativity. Right. Thank you for that. And um, I smiled a, a few minutes ago when you mentioned Down as the home of Darwin, because that's 30 minutes from where I live. If hey. ever you're in London, allow me to take you on a walk around there if you haven't been to see the house. Um, but yeah, we we discovered recently, I was hankering for a move to the countryside during lockdown in the UK. And my partner was saying, oh, I'm not keen, I'm not keen. And then we discovered that actually just a 30 minute drive on a Saturday morning and you are, you are in the Kentish countryside. Yeah, it, it's it is amazing. There. It's, it's relatively mm-hmm. on the doorstep um, and it's pretty beautiful around there. So yeah, and I, I smiled, which I appreciate listeners won't be able to tell when you mentioned down, because <laughs> I, I was going to mention that. Um just one one question on the, the the flock example in Norwich. Do they mandate the red, green, and amber time? So is it in the diary, this is red time, or do, do, do people get to select? I guess it wouldn't work if you selected. It is mandated. And I think that the, you know, the trade-off here is that even though, you know, there are some differences in circadian rhythms, you know, some people are yeah. sort of larks or night owls or what have you. And it may be that at particular, you know, or to particular times in projects, you need less red time maybe than sort of than at others, that this that the benefits of coordination and predictability 
outweigh whatever disadvantages sort of may come from sort of doing this in a structured way versus allowing, you know, sort of allowing everyone to kind of make it up as they go along. I mean, it's, I think it's a little bit like going to the theater, right? Sort of, um, if everyone gets to choose their own intermission time, then, you know, things get kind of chaotic. And so the, you know, uh, but I think, and across companies, I think that sort of they're, you know, they do, plenty of places do have these conversations about sort of whether, you know, whether we should allow everyone to do this or to figure this out for themselves or whether we should all do it together. But it's a way, but doing it together is a way of reinforcing good habits of sort of, of sort of synchronizing this activity in ways that uh, sort of, uh, that guarantee that people can work in an undistracted fashion. And um, so I think that the, and uh, so companies that, you know, companies that make that choice sort of do so sort of for, sort of for, for those reasons. You know, I think, you know, all of it, you know, all of it is better than sort of, you know, working in, you know, a state of what Linda Stone called continuous partial attention, right? Or to mm-hmm. being constantly interrupted or distracted by stuff. Um, so, you know, you, uh, so measured against that, um, it's absolutely a win. Yeah. Okay. Let's come back to the attention and potential attention deficit and distraction and so on. And even to the idea of a shorter working week, I want to come right back to the issue or or the question of rest and recovery. Is there a difference between the two in the way that you define them? Um, I think in term, in, in my work, there really is not sort of a, sort of a strong difference. Um, I think maybe, you know, if I were going back and writing the book today, I might try and tease that out a little bit. But, you know, when I, sort of when I was writing it, making the case for rest as something that sort of ambitious people, you know, and knowledge workers needed to take seriously and sort of make time for in their day, making that case was kind of a big enough, you know, sort of a big enough task. So, um, you know, so consequently, there's not, there's not a very big distinction. I should also say that you know it was late in the project that I really kind of became aware of the degree to which um, you know, uh, sort of coaches or athletic trainers had been thinking about these issues of balancing you know sort of high intensity sort of work or or to practice with periods of rest and recovery, right? You know, sort of the last the last time I had coaches was in the South in the early 1980s, and everyone wanted to be Bear Bryant, and you know, you showed your dedication by like you know, sort of um, letting your team become dehydrated. So like, if someone didn't faint during practice, you weren't working people enough. So that was so you know, it was a it was a very different set of assumptions about how people trained, and it was so you know, had had I had I be had I realized that sort of the world had changed as much as it has, um, you know, ah. I th- maybe I could have I could have made better use of that work. But yeah, I, I do like the way that we're being occasionally and and very happily interrupted. Well, not interrupted. This sort of background <laughs> of of the dog barking because the the dog represents to me a significant bit of recovery. I start the day with a walk with oh, my yeah. dog. Uh, I will look across that she's not there now, but look over at her. Um, 
just just a moment of sort of gazing at her. And it's, it's that little slither, a sliver, as I call it, of rest of recovery. Just, just let my eyes wander and rest upon her and I adore that animal. And it is, it's a break. It's a little <laughs> dropout, whatever's going on that I'm concentrating on or cogitating over or worrying about. Sometimes I'll gaze into her eyes, you know, 20 seconds of gazing into a dog's eyes. It it's a huge amount of dopamine for them. Sorry, oxytocin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also for me. Um, so the dog barking is, is a very welcome accompaniment, <laughs> a background lullaby almost. But I mean, in terms of, of rest and recovery and then the, either the science or the empirical evidence for creativity, productivity and so on, what have you learned about that in your work? So the, you know, the interesting, for me, the really interesting insights are that, you know, number one, there's an awful lot of creative work that goes on in our minds when we're not sort of conscious of it. Um, uh, and second, that this is, you know, this is actually a process that we cannot sort of control, but we can kind of nudge along or encourage. So the first thing is that there's a, about 30 years ago or so, sort of neuroscientists realized or sort of began to see in fMRI machines that when you, you know, when people just kind of zone out and don't focus on anything in particular, you watch what their brains are doing and your brain doesn't get quiet, even though it feels like your, you know, your mind is maybe becoming more still. In fact, what's going on is a second set of connections between different parts of your brain that you're not aware of start to fire up and get active. And this can activate even in the time it takes you to blink your eyes. So um, they call this the default mode network. And it connects together parts of the brain that are associated with visualization, with um, rumination on or the past or thinking about the future. And it also tends to take on problems that we've been working on that have eluded our conscious sort of conscious solution. So this is something that's kind of operating all the time. So, you know, when you have that uh, you know, sort of that experience of you're trying to remember you know, the name of the actor who was in the movie and that other thing, and they, you know, it doesn't come to mind. And then five minutes later, while you're doing something else, you realize, oh, wait, that was Kat Dennings. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it just sort of pops into your head. That's the default mode network continuing to work on problems even while your mind is elsewhere. Now, it turns out that this is, uh, this is also something that, um, we cannot control, you know, you can't kind of command the default network to work on stuff, but you can, particularly through, of, uh, through uh, routines and daily schedules, create space in which, it can, uh, in which it can work. And by so doing, it seems that sort of the default mode is more likely to work on problems than, or of, than if it's called upon to do so at random times. So, you know, I think this is one reason that you see people developing such or of, you know, pretty rigorous, pretty rigorous daily schedules when they have, you know, or of when they have the or of, uh, the power to do so, and fi- you know, and that's because. You know, in you know, if you're a novelist, if you're sort of you know, whether you're a novelist or a scientist or a designer, you know, often those you know sm- sort of those small insights, those you know incremental improvements in a solution to a problem or a view into sort of a challenge, that can really make a difference over the long run 
in sort of the quality of your work. And so sort of doing things to cultivate that is a sort of turns out to be a really useful thing for sort of for knowledge workers. Now, it's also the case, I think, that when you look at companies that have moved to shorter work weeks, part of what they have realized, and one of the big insights that I take away from sort of spending time with them, is that they're basically all work has a significant creative component to it, right? It's obviously the case if you're a software developer or, you know, you're sort of in professional services. But likewise, if you are an auto mechanic, you know, you're dealing with an incredibly complex bunch of technical systems under the hood of a car. You know, figuring out what's wrong is not just a matter of, you know, reading like the diagnostic thing on the computer and then sort of applying a solution. There's actually a lot more stuff that goes on there. Likewise, if you are working as a nurse in a care home, the amount of ingenuity you need, the empathy, the problem solving, in order to get people up and dressed and moving with their day and engaged, it's a non-trivial amount of of decision-making and problem solving that's required in that kind of work. And so even though we don't call it creative, basically just about all work that can be given to robots or of effectively has been. And so even in, you know, even in, in fields that we don't, you know, that are sort of blue collar, that are sort of, uh, you know, that are sort of paid by the hour, that are not given the honorific of creative work, um, or of e- those, those can benefit from sort of the kind of systematic application of these rules just as, or of, uh, you know, just as, sort of creative, quote-unquote, work can. Right. That was a long answer, and I hope, you, I, hope, I hope either that answered the question or, at this point, um, you and your listeners don't remember what the question was. So <laughs> it, anyway. it did answer the question. Um, do you think we get less rest now? Yes, I think so. Um, you know, we live in the, you know, the reality is we live in a world that, is uh, you know, that is constantly um, or of competing for our attention, and mm. you know every time every time you go on social media, you are going up against a hundred Stanford PhDs in psychology and behavior, you know behavioral economics, who are sort of tweaking your experience, trying to find just little ways of getting you to spend a little bit more time on the system, creating incentives to or of you know get you to engage a bit more and. To you know, to and to not spend your time, not spend your time on what you want to, but on what they want to, and I think that the sort of uh, you know the fact that we are capable, you know, that technology makes it possible for us to carry our offices around in our pockets to and has sped you know and has made sort of things like interoffice communication sort of uh, much faster, has created a sensibility that, you know, not only can we respond any time, but we really should respond any time to, you know, queries, to sort of issues that, you know, that, uh, that our bosses have. And so I think that we do have to, and, you know, and in, in a world in which we are all, you know, that has moved from work Work that is bounded by, you know, the hours of the day. You know, you go sort of, you know, this sort of, you know, 
you go in from the fields when the sun starts to set, or you go home from the factory when the sort of whistle goes off, to you know a world in which work is perfectly capable of going anywhere and expanding to fill all hours of the day. It is ever more important for us to be really thoughtful about or of constructing and maintaining boundaries between work and non-work time. And in that non-work time, you know, reserving portions, you know, reserving portions of that for rest and recovery. And then finally, you know, the hard or of the even harder challenge, figuring out sort of ways during the day, during work, of sort of working in those periods so that you know we can sort of we can we can work we can work better or you know do the kinds of work that you know we really want to do is there any particular time that is the sweet spot based on studies you know i know there's pomodoro breaks i don't know much how much rigorous science there is around those for example which i believe is work for 20 minutes rest for five uh, twenty-five. Uh, I think it's twenty-five and five. Yeah, twenty-five and five. Um, right. But is there any science around the optimal time? Because before I let you answer that, I mean, one of the things I talk about, I try to make things very bite-sized and easy. So a mm-hmm. magic minute, a minute, sixty right. seconds to look out the window, breathe, stand, move, shake, whatever it might be, um, because that feels attainable for most people. In fact, it is considered pleasurable for most people get up move around for a minute but there's a study showing that actually five minutes every hour is the sweet spot or in a typical working day what could it look like right so people are able to focus or to really focus hard for about 90 to 110 minutes or so after that attention responsiveness etc fall off a cliff even if you don't and even if you don't feel like you're becoming less productive you actually are um, I think you know, one of the challenges that we have is that there often is a mismatch between or of how much we think we're able to focus or sort of get done and how much we're actually capable of doing. And I think becoming or of you know sort of respecting the uh, respecting those limits and being sort of more aware of them is a really really great thing if you want to do good work for sort of you know for a long time. So. You know, I think being so having so in plenty of companies and plenty of people's daily schedules, having these periods where you're working about 90 minutes, you're taking a break for about 15 or so, um, which is usually about enough time to or of you know to get up enough energy or enough of a break so that you can dive in for another 90 or so, and then doing this, let's say three times. So if you can get like four and a half or five hours worth of like serious focus time, that is a great day. Um, it is a rhythm that will allow you, if you are sort of thoughtful about how you plan your time, to get a lot done. It means that you can work more sustainably across the course of a week or sort of a season. And I think the you know the evidence is that it also makes for sort of a you know, longer and more fruitful career. Just for myself, you know, following that kind of sort of rhythm, um, you know, I've been able to do three books in the last ten years. And before I discovered that, it took me ten years to finish my first one. So you know, this is. It's a it's a method that has really worked for me, but when you look across like the lives of of the people I talk about in rest, generally four or five hours is how much they or of how much they work. 
And when they are trying, you know, when they are working on improving their daily schedules, what they do is to try to make the peaks higher rather than try and draw the sort of length, you know, draw out the length of the day. So, you know, each one of those 90-minute sessions, you try and make it a little bit more intensive. You think through what it is that you need, you know, you really need to get done. And you, you know, you make incremental changes that allow you to do just a little, you know, to do just a little bit better work. Um, the other thing about that is that the kind of, there is evidence that the more focused you get, or the more likely you are to get benefit, to get a kind of creative boost during those downtimes. So, and, you know, I've, there were a number of stories of people who you know, will, go on you know, the morning walk with the dogs after sort of working for a couple hours. I do this myself, and I carry a little notebook with me because after writing, you know, I've still got these things that are still kind of running around in my head, problems, you know, like, I, you know, how do you do this transition from this subject to this subject? And when I'm out walking with the dogs in the morning, I will often all of a sudden have a solution come to mind. And I've got to write it down because otherwise I'll forget it. When I take the dogs out in the evening, in contrast, I don't have those kinds of insights. So it's not just, you know, it's not just like sort of the create, it's not just that rest time allows for a creativity. It is rest time at certain times preceded by that work um, is mm-hmm. what really allows you, yeah, sort of what allows for sort of those kinds of insights. It's sort of like, you know, you don't build muscle just sleeping. Um, mm. you know, you also, you know, you also have to work out first and then sort of, you know, and then the muscle builds. So, you know, much to the consternation of some of us. But. <laughs> Indeed. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of talk about techno- technology. You talk about it in, uh, in your book. Um, we, we talk a lot in the negative sense about technology, how it's consuming mm-hmm. our focus and our attention and dissolving social relationships and everything. Let's look to this as a positive because it's here to stay. And in fact, there's a great many benefits that enhance rest and recovery around technology, the ability to work remotely, for example, two minutes from a beach. Um, how can we leverage technology to improve our focus and recovery? I think I would zero in on two things. You know, number one, that... Um, you know, I think we need to recognize that there are, I've got a little bag of snacks beside me. So when I'm, when I'm dipping off, that's what, that's what's, that's what's going on. I have two other dogs here who are just sleeping completely peacefully, but I've got, but there's, 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 there's one, there's one who's figured out the existence of the snack bag. Anyway, um, you know, I think thing number one is recognizing that our sort of relationships with our technologies can be incredibly powerful and empowering that you know we are as humans there you know, we have a long history of you know enhancing or augmenting our physical and mental abilities through technology you know whether that is fire or you know sort of spears or other kind you know or tools or writing right we are really, really good at using technologies in really profound ways that extend our sense of ourselves and our ability to do things in the world. The problem, I think, with or if, uh, with social media or you know uh, or today's devices is that they kind of hijack that relationship. Right, your relationship with your bicycle, you know, where you're feeling like you are kind of you know you're riding really well and you become part of the road. That's a really intimate thing 
but you know, uh, but the bike company doesn't intermediate that. Right, the bike company isn't able to kind of tweak that relationship in ways to try and you know sort of sell you some you know or of encourage you to buy something else, and so the fact that uh, sort of that uh, that the uh, that these technologies do not just work in sort of, you know work exclusively on our behalf, but are kind of vectors for sort of the imposition of sort of the interests of others, whether mm-hmm. they are. The manufacturers, whether they are they are our employers, is I think the you know that that in a sense is the real enemy, and the challenge therefore is to find ways of sort of taking back control of these, uh, you know, of using them in ways that serve us rather than serve others, and partly I think that's about being more aware of you know the kinds of tricks or strategies that sort of designers use to try and keep us on, you know, sort of on social media a little longer or playing games just for a couple more minutes or, you know, scrolling a bit more. Um, it's also, I think, about uh, at, you know, at the organizational level, returning control over technologies to or of sort of to workers to figure out how best to use them themselves. Um, one of the things that I see in companies that move to sh- uh, sort of to shorter hours is that many of them will um, essentially devolve to teams and to employees or sort of the power to figure out which parts of their job they want to try and figure out how to automate, which parts you know you use technology to help you sort of do more effectively, which things you know require not you know a better workflow or CRM, but really just require like time and silence and sort of reflection. And the thing about that is that when you give people that ability, incredibly, people tend not to simply automate their own jobs out of existence. Or to you know automate the stuff that's really really valuable, but you know, people who care about their work and are thoughtful about it are, uh, turn out to be really good at making smart choices about what stuff to automate and what stuff not to. What that does require, though, is actually giving you know, sort of giving to workers that ability rather than you know sort of giving it to. I don't, you know, sort of efficiency experts or, you know, sort of bosses who want to micromanage it. Um, I think that so, you know, and then I, uh, so, you know, I think that it's, you know, it's not so much a, you know, in a way it is a, it's a problem with the kind of relations, sort of relations built into sort of our devices um, more than our, you know, more than simply our relationships with them that we have to sort of think about and think differently about. Mm. Okay, cool. Let's spend the last few minutes talking about how you rest, if you like. Do you have any non-negotiables? My second um, question related to that would be, are there any red flags that you know are, well, well when I see that, then mm-hmm. whether that's a behavior or uh, an error that you know you wouldn't normally make? You know, what are the red flags or what are the negotiables to mm-hmm. sort of navigate away from those? So I think my, you know, the, my daily schedule when I'm, um, when I'm writing a book is um, I have a real, the, the centerpiece of it is a really uh, well-developed morning routine. So I'm usually up and writing by about 5 or 5.15. I will write for a couple hours 
I'll then take the dogs out, you know, carry the notebook with me, have some more ideas, come back, write for a couple more hours, and then that's pretty much the bulk of the day. The afternoon, I'll almost always have a nap. I'll sort of try, I'll, you know, deal with most of the email then. And then the rest of the afternoon and the evening, if there's stuff I want to read or such, I'll sort of do that. And then I'll prep for the next day. And it turns out for me that of that preparation is really essential for me. You know, a good morning starts the night before for me. Mm-hmm. So set up the coffee, you know, write out what it is that I'm going to be working on the next morning. Because at 5 a.m., I am not a morning person. And so, you know, super early in the morning, I do not want to have to make any decisions whatsoever. And so the coffee is going. I've set out my clothes for order the next day. And so I don't have to think about you know, I just like roll through all that stuff. And the first decisions I make are, what's the next sentence to write? The other important thing about that is that there is some evidence that uh, that kind of seeding the ground that way um, encourages, encourages your subconscious to start thinking about sort of solutions to problems or of, uh, sort of overnight. Um, John Cleese has this lovely story about how when he first started writing comedy, he would sort of sometimes get stuck on a sketch or sort of a punchline. In he was working at night, um, he would go to sleep, and you know he would set it aside and go to sleep. And the next morning, not only could he find an answer to the you know sort of complete the the sketch, he couldn't really remember what the problem had been. <laughs> and it's you know, and that's a that's. Or of what that tells us is that you know part of his you know part of his mind was continuing to work on mm. you know work on that sketch sort of overnight, and I think that that is you know I will sometimes have the experience when I'm writing of it feels almost more like I'm transcribing something that sort of uh, that my subconscious has already come up with, and it's just a matter of getting it out. So um, now. Right now, when I'm sort of, you know, I've, I'm in the second month of this job as a sort of global program manager for Four Day Week Global, which is a nonprofit that promotes sort of shorter working or working hours. I've got you know, lots of meetings with people in the UK and Australia and Asia, and so you know, I'm doing an awful lot of time shifting. So you know, I will have meetings starting at five or six in the morning. What and my and sort of what I'm what I'm figuring out is that. If I take the time the night before and think through, okay, you know, here's when I can feed the dogs, here's when I can take them on a walk, here's when I can do these other things, um, generally that makes the whole morning go a lot more smoothly. And so, you know, and that leaves time for, you know, sort of for sort of working out and for doing the other things I want to do sort of later on, sort of later on in the day. As for you know, and then I think the you know the other things I would uh, that are important to me are, you know, number one, I've become a huge fan of naps, right? I think there are, or of, and or my body has, um, and I find that especially in the afternoon, you know, like a twenty minute cat nap can be just as val- can be you know more valuable than like going you know or of you know forcing down yet another cup of coffee. Um, I also have become a lot more intentional as I've gotten older about exercise, um, partly, and though I've also become kind of um, more relaxed about it, which is helpful. So I've started doing, 
you know, started doing yoga. And I'm terrible at yoga, it turns out, right? Sort of. But the fact that, you know, but I am not worried about this the way I wa- I would have been when I was younger because, number one, I think that it's actually good to have some things that you enjoy that you're actually kind of rubbish at because it, I think, you know, in today, you know, lots of us are perfectionists. You know, we yeah. want to do everything right. And having something, you know, and being reminded that you can actually enjoy and benefit from things that maybe you're not that good at is a good thing. But to the, you know, but there's nothing else that gets me thinking about, you know, balance and sort of, you know, just the, like the positioning of my body that sort of like that. And, you know, as, as I get older and, you know, my knees get worse and stuff, that's all, that's actually a really valuable thing to sort of, you know, sort of for me to, for me to practice. So, but, it does require being thoughtful about how you're going to design and spend your day. And for me, you know, I think that the sort of the red flag for when to take a break is when I'm no longer, you know, no longer able to focus on the stuff that I'm trying to do, right? And that is, I, you know, and that's actually not an easy thing to sort of, you know, it's not an easy thing to be aware of in the moment. Um, you know, we all have that experience of, you know, plan of saying, we're going to just take a minute and check our email and 20 minutes later, you're still responding to stuff. And it's not necessarily just because your inbox is full, but because sometimes, you know, you're kind of slowing down and, but it's difficult, you know, it's difficult in the moment to recognize that that's going on. And so that for me is an ongoing challenge, but as soon as I recognize it, I try to tell myself, you know, okay, let's get up, sort of, let's do something else, we'll be able, and sort of, we'll be, you know, sort of, uh, and if you take a break, you'll be a lot more effective when you come back to it than if you just try to, you know, uh, plow through. So that's what I do. Yeah. So what you just articulated there is, I said, a micro example, I'd say, of the predict, prepare, perform, recover methodology, the cadence that I try and encourage people to think about. You know, the the I do a to-do list the night before, you're kind of setting out the work, the chunk of work, the thoughts, the ideas that you want to be drawing out, teasing, elaborating the following day, which, you know, as you're saying, it kind of already starts areas of the brain thinking about those problems or issues. But also that's the prepare, predict, that's Mm -hmm. what I want to get done. Then the prepare is the sleep, the dog walk, the coffee and everything else. Then you get that piece of work done and then you take a break. So Mm -hmm. it's a great little, you know, I say little, just it's a micro example of how you could apply that methodology into a 12 or even 24 hour period. Mm -hmm. uh, As opposed to thinking big, which is what are the next three months have I got coming up? How am I prepared for that? Do I feel energized? Do I have time allocated for exercise, uh, seeing friends, seeing family, walking the dogs, the things I love to do, Um, and then getting that thing done, whatever it might be, and then recovering. But really what I wanted people to take from this, and you've been absolutely brilliant in conveying this, is the importance of rest recovery, call it what you will, that actually the working hard, working for long periods of time can be efficient 
and contribute to longevity in all its senses if you get that recovery. But it doesn't need to take a long time. We're not talking about two-week holidays after every project. It's right. it's on-the-job recovery that that gives you that, you know, that, <clears throat> that longevity of health span, uh, also of lifespan, of career, of ideas, all that kind of thing. So, Alex, thank you very much again for, for your time and sharing your ideas with us. It's been great. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Always a pleasure. Want more? Take our Wellbeing at Work company scorecard and get a free personalised report full of actionable insights. Or, if you're interested in finding out what your health IQ is, take our Health IQ scorecard. Links can be found in the show notes. And finally, if you've enjoyed the show, please take a moment to share and subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you.